All right. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Penny, and I am the pastor here at Christ the King. And uh, if you're a visitor or a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And I want to invite you uh, today. We are having a picnic at 4 o'clock at our church property. Uh, so hopefully very soon we'll be moving some land uh, just a little bit further west on 419 and uh, today we're going to be having a little picnic out there, a, a celebration. That's what we call it, Celebration Sunday. This is a way of us celebrating the anniversary of our church's founding. So if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, I'd like to extend a welcome to you, but also an invite that you're welcome to come today. Uh, whether you're a member, longtime visitor, first-time guest, never been here before, uh, you are welcome today to come. Uh, there's information in your announcement sheet, or you can ask me, you can ask uh, the people around you. We'd love to have you with us. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we are, have been looking at this first chapter of the book of Ephesians for the last couple of weeks, and we're looking at this uh, passage in verses 11 through 14 today, which are which is the end of one long sentence. I haven't noted this yet, but verse 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 in the original Greek is actually one sentence. So uh, thankfully our uh, English translators have helped us by putting in periods and semicolons and even paragraph markers so, so we wouldn't have to deal with it all at once. But, but it is one long sentence. And, and what's amazing is the way in which Paul has structured this sentence. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the everlasting love of the Father, that before the foundations of the world, he showed love to us. He determined that he would choose for himself a people. And last week, we heard about the mysterious and wondrous grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, the grace of his Son. So what do you think Paul is going to end with this morning? What, what do we have left to talk about? The Spirit. That's right. The love of the Father, the grace of his Son, and now this morning we have Paul directing us to the work of his Spirit, the work of God's Spirit in the life of his people, in the life of his church. And so let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, the three years that I spent in seminary uh, were three wonderful years. I, I loved my three years in seminary. I loved sitting in class. I loved parsing Hebrew verbs. I loved learning new vocabulary, studying systematics. It, it was a wonderful three years. Uh, I like school. <laughs> I know, it's kind of dorky. I, I understand. Uh, that's okay. You can make fun of me. But, but I did. I loved being in school. It was wonderful. But, but it wasn't always wonderful. There was one particular semester that I remember very distinctly, and not because of how wonderful it was, and not because of how much fun I had, but because of how hard it was. 
The second semester of my first year was by far and away the most difficult semester of those three years. You see, Kat and I decided, as the planners that we are, that I was going to front-end load all of my uh, heavy lifting. I was going to, to put all my classes at the front so at the end we could have time to look for a job and get ordained and you know, just be able to relax a little bit before we get thrown into ministry. And, and so that's the plan. And so this semester, this second semester, I was taking all kinds of translation classes and Greek and Gospels and all sorts of readings, and, and it was just piling on and on. And I remember I was sitting in Gospels. It was about the second or third week. It was my, one of my favorite classes with one of my favorite professors, and he had been showing all these amazing observations that he made about what Jesus had said and how the disciples responded and how this Greek verb means this and helps us understand that. And instead of being in awe of what I was hearing and actually being led into worship, I was filled with anxiety and worry and questions. The question started to run through my head, do I really belong here? I started to wonder, you know, I, I've never seen this before. I've never noticed how Jesus said this and how Mark did that and how the disciples respond. I never saw these things. And, and surely everyone else around me has seen these things. So clearly, I don't belong. To make matters worse, I sat about the second row, and this was a massive class, and it felt like every eye was beating down on the back of my head, wondering the exact same thing. What is he doing here? Have you ever experienced that, that feeling of uneasiness? Wondering, do, do I really belong? You walk into a room, and you look around, and you don't know a single person. You, you enter into these conversations, and there's this uh, there's these jokes that you don't know about and these little colloquialisms that are unique to this particular community and, and you feel so out of place. You walk in and you're way too dressed, you're way uh, too nicely dressed or you're way too underdressed and you look around and wonder, is this my place? Have you ever experienced that? I'm sure you have. In fact, you've probably even experienced it in the church, right? Right? It's easy for us to do, hopefully not at this church, <laughs> but it's easy to feel out of place, to wonder, do I really belong? I imagine that the, the church at Ephesus, that there were people a part of this church who were wondering that same thing. Remember, this church is made up of both Jewish as well as Gentile believers, these people who were opposed to one another for generations, and now they're called to live together. So imagine for, for a moment, if you will, the Gentile believers well, that's who you are. <laughs> Imagine yourself as Gentile believers entering into this new community. You haven't grown up with the promises of God. You haven't learned the Old Testament. You don't know the Shema. You don't know these sorts of things. And you look around and be easy to think, maybe this isn't my people. Maybe this isn't my place. I could imagine the Jewish believers wondering that as well, looking upon them like I thought my classmates were looking on me and thinking, who are these new people? With all their crazy new ideas and their new words and their new phrases, they don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the... Do they really belong? It's in those moments that we need to be encouraged, that we really do belong, that this really is our place. 
I found that encouragement for myself, for my friends. I went to them and I shared with them my anxiety, my worry. And what did they say? They said, Penny, you are crazy. You're like the smartest guy in class. No, they didn't say that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That would have been awesome. (laughs) I wouldn't share that with you. But that's not what they said. They said, Penny, of course you feel this way. And so do we. Of course you've never noticed that Greek verb This man's been studying Greek almost as long as you've been alive. He said, we feel the same way. They encouraged me. I I felt like I was a part of this people, that I really did belong. And I felt it even more when the professor, who didn't know I was anxious and worried and concerned, invited me to be his TA. That this was my place. This was my people. This is where I belonged. I needed that encouragement, and that's actually what Paul gives the church. He gives the church then, but he also gives the church now an encouragement. He speaks both to Jewish as well as to Gentile believers in these few verses here. In verses 11 and 12, he says, in him, there's that, those two words, remember, I told you they're going to keep coming. In him, we, we who were the first to hope in Christ, well, who is the we? Well, it's not Paul and his buddies who are going on his missionary journeys. The we are the Jewish believers, those who first heard the gospel and believed. In him we, but then notice in verse 13 how the reference changes. He says, in him you also. Well, who is the you? Pretty much every commentator I looked at agrees that the you is a reference to the Gentile believers. And so what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, and he's saying what is true of them is also true of you. That if you are in Christ, in him, that you belong. That this is your place. But look, Paul Paul doesn't just give them words of encouragement. He actually confirms this encouragement. He confirms this encouragement by pointing to the thing that they both have in common, Not just that they are in Christ, but that they have the Spirit. That's where Paul goes in verses 13 and 14, right? He points them to the sealing of the Spirit. In him, you also believed and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is that whether you come as an intellectual giant or with very little education, whether you come with great wealth or great poverty, whether you come familiar or unsure, if you come in Christ, then what is true of them is true of you, that the Spirit has sealed you. That we can have great comfort that we belong, that we belong to Christ because the Spirit, the Spirit seals us for our salvation. That's where Paul begins. That's where he directs us in verse 13. In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so so far uh, in these first kind of 13, 14 verses, Paul has been describing the plan of salvation, right? The plan of salvation that began before the foundations of the world, that God had determined, he had chosen. That's what he said in verse 11, right? That they were predestined that God had chosen a people for himself to show love to. And, and it's not just a plan, though. It's not just a plan that was birthed in the heart of God. This is a plan that's being worked out. That's what we see, right? That they heard and they believed and were sealed. And so there's a content to this plan. 
The content is the gospel. The gospel that Jesus actually took on flesh. He was incarnate. He dwelt among us. He lived and died and rose again to redeem for himself a people. To save those whom he chose. That that is what we are to believe. And it's not just the sort of belief like I give intellectual assent to the factualness of these events. Right? That I, I kind of affirm that the historicity of Jesus coming in the flesh and that he was this good moral teacher. It's more than that. It's not simply a, a casual cognitive awareness, but it's actually a deep-seated trust. You see, that word for believe, it can actually be translated as trust. It is this deep trust that we would have, a, a belief that is so deeply rooted that it would cause us to orient our entire life around the object of our belief. That is the content. That, that the Spirit seals only those whom God has chosen, only those whom they have believed. And so I have to ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe not simply that there was a man who was named Jesus, who was a great moral teacher, but do you believe and rest and trust in him alone for salvation? Do you believe and trust in him alone to, to forgive your sins and to turn your rebellion into rejoicing? Do you believe? If the answer is no, if the answer is I'm not sure, we're, we're glad that you're here. But I would ask you, I would invite you to, to ask God, show me, show me yourself, reveal yourself to me that I would believe. Ask God to use his spirit to soften your heart so that you would trust in him. But if you do believe, I know many of you do, if you do believe, be assured be confident that whether you believed so long ago, you can't even remember a moment when you didn't believe. Or if you've only believed for a few days or even a few moments, that God has sealed you with his spirit. That this isn't something that comes later, right? There is this, um, there, there is this movement within Christianity in which there's a belief that we believe and then later the spirit comes, but, but that's not what happens. It happens actually in a moment God seals you with his spirit. He claims you for himself. That's what this sealing is. That language of sealed with his spirit, it's, it's something that we're maybe not accustomed to because we, we don't go around sealing things anymore. Or at least y'all don't. I, I still do. Um, this is my seal. I, I know. It's like Penny is a dork. <laughs> I, I understand. It's like, why can't he just lick it? Uh, no. Because um, I actually like to write handwritten notes. You know, um, stuff that you can't do on a keyboard with a pen and ink. You guys remember those things, right? Um, so I like writing handwritten notes. Um, and sometimes when I write handwritten notes, I'll pull out my wax and I'll melt it down and I'll put my stamp on it. Some of y'all have probably seen this from me because some of y'all have received this from me. Um, now I set myself up. It's like, if you don't get my seal, it's okay. I still like you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it takes a lot of time. Um, but anyway, uh, when you get this in the mail and it has that P on it, it tells you that this is mine, that these are my words, that this has come from me, that belongs to me. And that's what God is saying to you, 
that if the Spirit rests upon you, if you are filled with the Spirit, God has stamped you. Like I stamped that envelope. God has stamped you and said, you are mine. He claims you for his own. And it doesn't matter if you are the most spiritual person in the world or you are the youngest Christian. If you believe in him, his spirit has been stamped on you. You are his. And so we can have great assurance that we belong, that we belong to him. God has sealed us for salvation, but he hasn't just sealed us for salvation. He sealed us for more than that. He sealed us for an inheritance, an inheritance. Now, you know, um, these seals were really great when uh, they were delivered on like horseback, but, but now they, they go through these machines and sometimes the seal gets all messed up. It's really discouraging, um, but um, it's really not that bad. It's okay, but it gets messed up sometimes and it gets broken and it gets smeared and it gets smushed and, and you can't tell that it's a pee. It looks like maybe the, the machine just kind of, I don't know, like just sprayed something all over it and ruined the envelope. And anyway, but you can tell I get frustrated with this. So, but anyway, um, it, it gets broken and it gets defamed and it's hard to tell what it really is anymore. And is this really from Penny or not? And I imagine that if you're like me, that over the course of time, you, you embraced and loved the idea that God has sealed you with his spirit. But over the course of time, you live your life and you do things and you say things and you start to wonder, well, maybe that seal that God gave me has broken. Because sometimes it, it doesn't look like that stamp anymore. And it'd be easy for us to start to wonder, maybe that seal really wasn't on me. Or maybe that seal doesn't continue to be on me. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever wondered this because I know that in the deep parts of our hearts, every one of us have. Is God's seal broken? Well, Paul's assur- Paul assures us in this passage that, that his seal is not broken. That God's seal doesn't melt and it doesn't fade, but instead it remains on us. We have been sealed for an inheritance. Listen in verses 13 and 14. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That, that word guarantee, it actually has a couple nuanced different meanings. The first is that idea that this inheritance is sure, that it is guaranteed, that for those who have the Spirit dwelling within us, that, that there is an inheritance to come, a glory that we will one day inherit. A day when, when we won't sin anymore. Can you imagine that? No more sin. A day when our old selves won't wage war against our new selves because there will only be a renewed self. Is, is that not a wonderful idea? A wonderful vision. Great hope. That that is what we are going to inherit and this inheritance is Sure. When Peter talks about this inheritance in 1 Peter, he says that it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The seal isn't broken because God ensures that the seal remains. He guarantees it. 
The Holy Spirit is like a voucher that has been given to us, and one day God will claim it for his own. It is guaranteed. But it's not just guaranteed. You see, the other nuance of that word that, that we translate guarantee is this sense of, of a down payment, a down payment or, or, um, or, or a foretaste, a foretaste. Kids, do you, do you know what a foretaste is? A foretaste is like, uh, think about this way. Um, uh, every kid, probably y'all have baked with your mom or dad, right? Yeah? Yes, you have. Wonderful. Um, this past week, my kids helped me bake a cake. Y'all, some of y'all know I like to bake, so they helped me bake a cake. And what do the kids get to do when they're helping mom or dad bake? I can't just say mom, right? Because it's dad too, right? What do they get to do? They fill up their measuring cups with the with the uh, flour, and they dump it in, and they turn on the, the beater, often way too fast, right? And everything goes flying, and, and they get to help pour the batter into the cake pans, and they're whipping up the icing. But, but in all this time, in all the fun that we're having, kids, what is it that you're really wanting to do? What is it? You're wanting to lick the beaters, of course. You keep asking, Mom, can I just have a little taste? Daddy, can I stick my finger? No, you know, you haven't washed your hand. No, you have. It's okay. You know, the, the heat will get rid of the germs. You right? Like that, <laughs> that's what you want to do, right? You're wanting a little bit of a taste of the batter, of the icing, of the cookie dough. Can I just have a little bit? And at some point, right, Mom or Dad, we, we let them do this. But kids, has your mom or dad ever given you the whole bowl and said, you can have a little bit, but you know what? Just keep going. Has that ever happened? Lane? No, it's never happened. There's no way. We would never do that, right? We would never give that to them. No, the, that little bit, it's just a sample. It's, it's a foretaste. That's what a foretaste is. It's a sample of the whole. It's the sample of the goodness that is one day going to come, and that's what the Spirit is on us. You see, the Holy Spirit seals us for an inheritance that is in the future, that one day we will claim for ourselves, that one day God will cash in and say, you are mine, that he will redeem. But he's also a foretaste. It's a beginning of that inheritance. And so you know what that means? It means that we live today as, in, as heirs of that inheritance. That's what it means. It means that, that we don't sit there and go, well, I have this inheritance. It's guaranteed. The seal can't be broken. And so I can just do whatever I want. Right? That's, that's actually not how it works. Paul took up that rhetorical question in Romans. Remember, should I sin so that grace would increase all the more? And what did he say? By no means. You don't understand grace if that's what you're wanting to do. No. No, you see, as those who already have an inheritance guaranteed and those who have a taste of it now, we don't do whatever we want to do. We do whatever he wants us to do. We have this foretaste of an inheritance. We've been sealed for it. A guarantee by God's spirit. God is sealing us for a salvation. He's sealing us for an inheritance. You ever wonder why he does this? I mean, really, why does he do this? Surely it's for our good, right? Because it is. It is for our good. But it's actually much more than that. It's much more than that. You see, God seals us with his spirit for salvation and for an inheritance 
so that we would celebrate. We are sealed for celebration. And this celebration is that we would glorify God. That's what we see in verse 14. We are sealed. He has sealed us to the praise of his glory, God's glory. This isn't the first time that Paul talks about God's glory in this one sentence. In verse 12, he said, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in verse 6, he said, we are adopted as sons according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, God's work of redeeming us by his son and sealing us by his spirit, it is for our good, but ultimately it is for God's own glory, for his own name that he would be made much of. It's so important that Paul would talk about three times in one sentence that God is the center of our salvation. He is the one deserving of praise. I don't know what that makes you think about. God calling God demanding, God working and orchestrating in such a way that he would be glorified. Maybe it causes you to think about the narcissism that we see on Sundays. Um, I'm not talking about the pastor. <laughs> At least I hope not. Uh, or, or the church. No, no. I imagine that some of us uh, today, we're, we're going to go home. We're going to have a, a meal, maybe with our family or friends. And, and before we head out to Celebration Sunday, we, we might turn on the TV. And we might watch a little bit of football, or maybe we did yesterday, or maybe we watched the ball game, right? We saw Matt Holliday hit that wonderful home run to win the game for the Cardinals. Was it just me that saw that? Um, <laughs> um, but what, do, what happens when these great uh, athletic events happen? These great athletic feats, right? A guy catches the ball, he scores his touchdown, the, the camera zooms in, and what do we often see? Arms stretched out basking in the celebration of everyone who is watching, right? They are glorying in this wonderful athletic fee. And, and in some sense, that's okay. We're, we're okay with that. But we know that at some point, it crosses a line, right? Because sometimes these wonderful athletes, they, they don't put their hands down. They actually keep inviting and asking for more and more and more. They are wanting to glorify themselves and have everyone around them celebrate who they are. And what do we think about when it crosses that line? Arrogant, boastful, self-centered. Who is this person to glory in themselves and to actually call people to glory in themselves? We know intuitively that there's just something wrong with that. So we have to wonder, is God basically the wide receiver calling for his own glory? Is he, is he the arrogant and pompous athlete? C.S. Lewis actually wondered that. In his book, Reflection on the Psalms, he's talking about uh, how he viewed God before he became a Christian, and this is what he wrote. He said, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. 
Is God basically a celebrity calling for us to declare his own virtue? Has God crossed that line that we understand intuitively? Or is there something more? Well, you see, the difference between God calling us to glorify him and to us glorifying in ourselves is, one, we're not God. <laughs> and that's a good thing. We're not God. But the second thing is, is that God actually loves you so much that he doesn't want you to glory in anything other than him. Okay, think about this way. What is idolatry? Idolatry, there's lots of different ways that we define idolatry. One of the more common ways today is it's a good thing that's made into what? An ultimate thing. That's, that's a good definition. But, but at its core, idolatry, making a good thing an ultimate thing is actually glorying and celebrating something or someone more than we do God. And because God, as one theologian put it, is not an idolater, he will not leave us in our idolatry. You see, for God to give glory to another, to give honor and to celebrate another, would actually be for God to do the very thing that he is calling us not to do. And God loves you too much. He cares for you too much to leave us in our idolatry. Instead, he wants to lead us out of it so that we would glory in the very one that we were created to celebrate. You see, that's how God has made us. We have been made to be these worshiping beings who are going to glory in something and not to glory in those things that will leave us wanting for more, but to glory in the one that we were actually made for. That's why the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism begins that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is how we were made. And friends, God loves you. He loves you so much that he won't allow you to continue to go on without being called to glory in the very thing that we were made for, him. That is beautiful. That is wondrous. He is the only person in the entire created order. He's outside of creation, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. But he is the only person who can invite this kind of glory and is worthy of it. And so, friends, this is what we are to do. God has sealed you for salvation. And he has sealed you for an inheritance that we will one day inherit, that we are heirs of, but that we have a taste of now. He has done all of this for you, that we would celebrate him. That we would give him the glory that is deserved, not just his acts, but his name. This is what he has made you to do. This is why he has sealed you with his spirit. Let us glory in him. Father, we do ask that you would turn our hearts towards you, that you would lead us in the way of the everlasting, that we would seek righteousness and truth and goodness, that we would put aside all those things that we cling to, that our hearts search after, and we would cling to you. Lord Jesus, that we would glorify you, the one that we have been made for, our heart's desire. That is who you are. Turn our hearts towards you. Fix our eyes on your glory, that we would celebrate you 
our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said together, amen. I'll invite the ushers.